All right. Good morning, guys. My name's Cullen. I am your host here at Cauldron Podcast, A History of the World, Battle by Battle. And today I am joined by the author of Wild East, Josh. Uh, Josh is the kind of creator, blogger, writer, uh, historian of Historyland on Twitter. Uh, are you on Instagram and Facebook as well, or just Twitter? Just, uh, um, I'm on I'm pretty much just on Twitter. I don't have an Instagram account for Land of History. Um, I uh, have I have my own personal account on Facebook. You can find me there uh, under my personal account. But uh, just pretty much Land of History on Twitter is, is the main place. And I'm sorry, the, the handle on Twitter is Land of History or History Land? It's Land of History on Twitter, and the, the blog's name is Adventures in History Land. Okay, perfect, yes. So if you're interested in that, check it out. Um, some great stuff on the uh, on Twitter there. I love. Uh, I've seen a bunch of your posts and that. Pretty entertaining. It's a good blend of humor and uh, and history, which is always cool. Um, and today I've got Josh here to help me work through uh, what I think is maybe one of the more interesting battles that I've read um, concerning Napoleon. And uh, we're just going to work our way through Rivoli. That's the uh, kind of the I don't know the the defining moment of the Italian campaign. Um, but before we get there, Josh, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? How did you get into this field? And uh, and what about Napoleon have you found particularly interesting or uh, fascinating or captivating? Okay, well, uh, starting with myself, um, I... Uh, I got into history and military history precisely um when i was uh when i was a kid you know um you see movies on tv sometimes and you, your parents tell you stories about great battles and stuff if you're if usually if you're a boy and um i had the kind of uh, dad and granddad who liked to do that so yeah that was uh i played toy soldiers when i was a kid i liked the uniforms i was very impressed by uh the generals and stuff i went out in the back garden and i played as if i was one um and in order to to sort of make the experience better i started to read more and sort of learn more about it to make the games better and it sort of spiraled out of control from there I hear you. So uh, in the U.S., it typically seems like when we talk to people, um, they start with World War II. Is that the same with you guys over there? Do you do you find that most people start their interest really begins with World War II and then blossoms out? Or I know here it's like Patton. Everybody loves Patton when they're like 12 years old. Well, um, I, th I can't speak for myself because I was uh, I was I was Robert the Bruce and the Duke of Wellington. Uh, when I was little, <laughs> um, so, not bad, not bad. so I, I don't know. I don't know about the World War Two people uh, out there. I, I get the impression though that yeah, a lot of people start with World War Two or World War One in Britain, yeah. um, and they're all like into Montgomery and uh, going over the top and things at the Somme. Uh, that never appealed to me because the uniforms were terrible. <laughs> that, well, you know, I I I kind of see what you're saying because. Once I found the world of like Sharp and uh, Cornwall and uh, you know the the books of of the Napoleonic era, I was like in a hundred percent. I love all the marshals. Ney is always like, you know, if I could pick one guy to get a beer with and just talk to, yeah, I think uh, Marshal Ney seems like an interesting cat. 
Yeah, uh, and I think he would be willing to probably sit down and give you the time of day, to be honest, because he was uh, he was a cavalry sergeant from Alsace uh, to begin with, so <laughs> he uh, he knew how to talk to people. <laughs> and I'm sure he's you know he strikes me as a type that had no problem talking about himself. Maybe oh. <laughs> you know uh, going on and on to to the point where somebody has to step in. Yeah, I mean, so you got in when you were a kid. Yep. Yeah. Um, and now that's turned into a career. Are you, uh, are you working in the field, you know, full time? Is this what you do? Um, well, uh, that is, that is, that is what I'm trying to do. Yes. Uh, yeah. I couldn't say that I'm able to be 100% in the field, uh, just like that, but that the writing books and posts and interacting and researching, with people online uh, is is now the majority of, of what I'm doing. That is awesome. <laughs> That's the goal, the hope. Yeah. <laughs> and long may um, continue. All right. So, and and we're, I want to save some time at the end of this to really talk about uh, the book you currently have out, Wild East. Uh, and then I think you had mentioned you also have something in the works or you're working on something currently or. Yeah. Uh, I also have a book coming out. I believe it's at the second scheduled for the spring of this year, which is about uh, a war in India called the second Anglo Maratha war, uh, which most people will know from the sharp books um, as one of the Duke of Wellington's first proving grounds. And also right now I'm contracted to be researching even though everything's closed, so I really can't. Uh, <laughs> um, a book about the siege of Pensacola in 1781. I well, that'll be interesting to find out what that is because I, I I have no idea what that. Uh, you mean I'm assuming Florida, right? Yeah, Florida, West Florida. That's the Spanish huh. campaign of the American Revolution. Huh. Okay. All right. Well, very cool. Uh, like I said, let's let's circle back at the end, and, and I want to dive into Wildies because I am also a huge fan of the uh, the the what kind of height of the British Empire, Victorian era, where you've got the gunboat diplomacy, and um, you know, I, I, I've always Rourke's drift in in that whole fiasco is kind of like my favorite part of of the 1800s so anything that's in that world is very cool to me i think it'll be right up your street then um uh, just to answer your question before about napoleon because i didn't actually answer that yes please yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um napoleon for me began as uh, i've had a bit of an on and off relationship with the, the legacy of napoleon because as i said I, I i was an admirer of the duke of wellington and i still am so napoleon to me i I grew to to not see as the enemy, uh, <laughs> just the enemy guy, and as as a character to learn about. And today, I find I, I, this is this is how I do it. Um, I don't. I, I actually really admire him and and quite like him during his early career. Then, when he becomes first mm -hmm. consul, he he slowly the he slowly slides down a hill where uh, he becomes more and more insufferable. And then when he goes back to St. Helena, you start to see more of a human being again. And uh, that's, that's where I am with Napoleon. But I find him a very fascinating man. Um, and, a, and a very... And, yeah, and there's no Go doubt... Ahead. I'm sorry. But, sorry, there's no doubt. There's no doubt he was uh, a, a brilliant general. 
he's uh he's kind of the you know the perfect embodiment of the batman quote of uh you either die young a hero or you live long enough to become the villain you know yeah <laughs> he, uh, he's a cautionary tale in success mm-hmm. this, this is that's very apt that's very apt indeed because he was the hero of europe at one point you know uh even british people when he was a, when he was fighting in italy what we're going to talk about today this is hero napoleon just plain hero hero mode this is batman napoleon this is everybody admired him he was fated around the world uh as this brilliant out of the left field general who took on the austrians and and won and yeah, at this point, he was, this was his. This was his image. This is what he. This is what he bought into. This is what he kind. Of, this is what launched his career. So, well, let's get into it then, and and kind of parse through this a little bit. I, I want to just briefly kind of uh, bring us to Rivoli. So, the Italian campaign, um, essentially, the the French Revolution kicks off. Uh, the rest of Europe realizes it's, this is not great for the old houses, the old kingdoms, uh, not ideal to have a bunch of people talking about liberty and freedom and, uh, and down with, and, you know, the idea of, of Kings getting guillotined is, is probably not something that the Austrian emperor (laughs) wants to to bandy about. So we understand why they're upset. Valmy happens. Uh, it's a massive success for the the idea of uh, conscript armies, of a nation rising to defend it, defend itself. Um, and the French are like, wait, we kind of got something here. If we, you know, if we can keep recruiting, I think they went from under Louis, the at the height of Louis's military before the revolution, I think it maxed out at like 250,000 um, soldiers. And then during the, right before the Italian campaign, the directory pulls out, I think like 750,000 men. So in a very short period, period of time, the whole, you know, the army expands, you know, exponentially it's massive. Um, any idea of like Napoleon comes on, there's that classic, what is it? Whiff of grape shot. Um, the moment in, in Paris where he's, kind of showing himself to be an action hero and save the day. They think they have something. He's kind of manipulated his way to Italy. And then what happens in Italy? Why is Italy important to France? Um, why is Napoleon in Northern Italy at all? Right. Well, these are, these are big questions, but um, so far as I, so far as the, for podcasting uh, sort of brevity, uh <laughs> Uh, in 1796, Italy is actually a, sh- a sideshow. Relatively speaking, in terms of the directory, it's not very important at all. They want to use Italy as a way to tie down Austrian troops. So I believe General Jordan can attack across the Rhine or the Danube, one of the two. And so... The, the army of Italy, as it is, um, is not a not a healthy it's not a healthy animal. Um, when Napoleon is is appointed is appointed commander over there, and he has to take command of um, 
you know, first of all, a, a few very experienced, somewhat older generals who will later become some of his finest, his his finest generals, like guys like Massena and Augereau and and people like that. And uh, it's it's a mess over there. I mean, they're not supposed to win. That's the point. The directory doesn't want them to win precisely. They're there because of some territorial interests uh, uh, to secure, to basically, I guess, secure the border, the southern border of France, really, I guess, and cause trouble for the Austrians. They're not supposed to win. Napoleon, however, being Napoleon, decides we can win and we should win. Um, And for a small army, northern Italy is perfect to you know, beat the Austrians around until they become jellies. <laughs> now, do you, uh, you just put the image in my head of like, you know, those, they, the move to get like vision boards. If you want something, put it up on a board and envision <laughs> yeah. yourself getting it. I, I would love to see what Napoleon's vision board would look like. <laughs> That would be that would be something, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, obviously in the middle would be a nude picture of Josephine, but everything else around it would be fascinating to digest. <laughs> yeah, this is true. So yeah. Italy at this time is is a collection of smaller kingdoms, the Papal States, the Piedmontese, Austrian-owned land, and and kind of it's it's just it's not quite out of medieval or Renaissance Italy, where it's like city states and small, you know, I, it, it's hard to explain because it, it would be a podcast of its own to go into. But so is that a benefit to Napoleon when he's looking at it? Does he see um, a lot of little countries or little places that he has to attack? Or does he see a, a divided opponent and the ability to kind of um, sneak in and, and snake his way around things? Well, Like you say, the the states of Italy, like um, the Grand Duchy of Tuscany, Venice, um, obviously Austrian owned Austrian owned territory is obviously the enemy anyway, and the various duchies and petty states that sit around the most prominent of which, like I say, are like the Grand Duchy of Tuscany and um, the Kingdom of Piedmont, and most of them don't like the French. Most of them are, I mean, the the, the Piedmontese. Interestingly, uh, the Kingdom of Piedmont, Piedmont and uh, Sardinia, as it later became, produces the king who will become king of Italy, essentially, later on in the 19th century. Um, but, yeah, so most of them don't like him. Most of them are, uh, if, if not trying to be neutral, uh, don't want him around. They certainly don't want ravaging French revolutionary armies wandering through their their, their towns. And um, since most of them are kind of under this sway, or at least under the shadow of it, of Austria, um, it's fair to say that he couldn't really count on a great deal of support from them, uh, being the representative of a revolutionary government and basically invading uh, their their territory. And he goes in there. I mean, he didn't start the war. He sort of picks it up. You know, he's, he's appointed commander of an army that's already been fighting there and hasn't really been able to do much. And so 
Yeah, I think he sees the disunity of the Austrians and all these petty states as an uh, as just something that can help him. Because what he immediately mm -hmm. does is he targets this. He targets the alliance. First of all, you've got you've got the Austrians and you've got this. You've got the um, we'll call them the Piedmontese, but you can also call them the Sardinians um, in the field against him. And in 1796, he his his initial campaign completely knocks the the uh, Piedmontese out of the war. So Austria now is is his only problem, really, because the rest of the city states are not going to really. Mm -hmm. They have to they have to stand back. They don't have their armies, and they don't want him sacking their cities. So if he shows up, pretty much they just have to sit there and wait for the Austrians to come and get them out of it, uh, of the hole. <laughs> so, so he sees this. He's he's already done away with the Piedmontese. Um, the Papal States are kind of uh, not emasculated. They have power, but they're not they're not going to be able to stand on their own two feet. No. They'd much rather help the Austrians do the dirty work and maybe pay for it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, definitely. I mean, the, the the Papal States certainly don't want anything to do with a bunch of atheist French revolutionaries who kill the king. Um, I think there was actually, I think he did actually drop down um, at some point and he did fight a battle against a Papal army, possibly. I, I'm a little vague on that, but um, yeah. he, did, he did have to sort of suppress them at some point um, from uh, gathering an alliance to come out, come and come and bother him but yeah i think that's that's fair to say so he runs through uh, a couple of early battles that um he wins rather convincingly uh lodi um castiglione mm -hmm. and um this all brings us to the city of mantua mm -hmm. um and mantua is to the austrians kind of the key to their first line of defense to their home you know the it's kind of it's a nexus point. It allows them to fight throughout Northern Italy. It allows them to fight down to Southern Italy. Um, so it's an important city for the Austrians. What is, uh, Napoleon, uh, eventually puts the city under siege and that brings us to eventually Rivoli. Uh, when, when he gets to that point, Mantua is under siege by the French and Napoleon's looking around. Uh, he's got, an enemy in the South in the papal States that might be coming up at some point. And he's got an Austrian army ahead of him that is numerically not superior at the moment because, uh, I think the French and you correct me, uh, obviously if I'm wrong on this, the French, I believe technically had more men, but Napoleon had more, um, on paper, he had more men, but uh, like an actual fighting force, he didn't have quite as much because he had to keep Mantua under siege. He had to watch the southern border. He had all these little garrison duties. Mm -hmm. um, so w when we first get to, or, you know, in the days leading up to Rivoli, Napoleon's looking across the field at the Austrians and wondering where they're going to attack. What, what makes Napoleon... I am having a hard time figuring out how to ask a question. Basically what, what I'm trying to say is I think it's, it's interesting. He seems to always guess right hmm. where the enemy is going to strike when they're going to strike. He seems to always have a good intuition or a good feel for where it's going to happen. What, what about Rivoli, uh, his preparation for Rivoli gives insight into Napoleon as a, as the general to be, as the guy that we now know as Napoleon. 
Okay. Is there uh, anything like that? Well, I think I think there definitely is. I mean, the entire Italian campaign, to be honest, can be seen as uh, the blueprint for what he does next in terms of his life as a general. He actually said, I believe, that he 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 learned nothing more during the rest of his career than what he had already learned in his first campaign. Um, I believe he told somebody that on St. Helena. Uh, but, and it's kind of fair to say, you know, everything, if you look for it, you can find in it in the first Italian campaign. So like you're saying, his immediate uh, 1796 campaign it knocks uh, the Austrians' allies out, and he just barrels them towards Mantua and drives them back up um, to uh, to towards Lake Garda and the Tyrol, and below Lake Garda and the Tyrol is Mantua, and there's a nice sort of open plain set amongst the hills in in there, and it's sort of uh, sort of cut off by rivers uh, to the north and to the south, and what happens then, of course, is the Austrians try and do a counterattack immediately. That fails, although although they do manage to relieve Mantua and put reinforcements into it, but they cannot raise the siege. Napoleon is just too quick for them. He's too, like you say, he just guesses what they're going to do, and he manages to pull it off because he's using something called interior lines of communication. So protected lines of communication on a shorter breadth, which means he can, with his, if you have faster moving troops, you can always just move to wherever the enemy is going because they have a longer way to go. And because of all these rivers and mountains and passes and gorges and small towns, this part of Italy is really great for that. And so he uses this to his advantage, even though the Austrians come at him from multiple directions sometimes. What he does is he uses the theory of the central position, whereby on top of the interior lines of communication, you are in the middle. Therefore, you can attack at any point. You can you can respond to whichever one you want because you're you can see everything basically, and it takes you a shorter time to get there. And so, he had tested these theories up to this point in in 1797, where we're turning into the 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 road to Rivoli, and he'd been pressed hard. I mean he had challenges. It wasn't an easy campaign to do. He, like we said before, the army of Italy is, is underclothed, underfed, underpaid. Um, but it's very tough and it has some very good generals. And he, he's able to use this and his, his ability to identify where the, where the, where the real attack, where the serious attack is coming where the attack that he must defeat to unravel the others is a gift he sort of has. Um, and he does this by using the other military maxim of marching divided and fighting concentrated. So he will have, at this stage, it's not a very big army. You know, it's at its, at its height, I think it only approached like 37,000 men, maybe 40,000 men spread over and spread out, because like you said, they're, they're besieging Mantua, and they're also having to guard various parts of the, uh, of their, to, to, yeah, it's like they're being besieged while they're besieging Mantua, really. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> so what he'll do is he, he, he would wait 
he would he would wait for the enemy to to press his outlying divisions and brigades and from those reports he would be able to discern where the real attack was building and then he would just grab every uh, possible troops that he had available and rush them to that point and it was like a sort of wizardry to the austrians because no matter where they hit him he always turned up with enough men to either stop them or completely crush them so this uh by 1797 not only the tables are slightly turned like you say um the uh this is <laughs> what is it how many how many attempts to relieve mantua had failed now uh three i think uh, <laughs> three or four, failed. Three or four yeah. for sure i um, think the, the 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 final rivoli was the fifth attempt at <laughs> at at relieving it which is mm -hmm. crazy uh, so they were, they were kind of, they were desperate to try and break through. This was obviously going to be their last chance. Like you said, as well before they'd actually lost an awful lot of men, uh, up to this point. So they were almost on parity with Napoleon and the, the Austrian general field marshal. Um, I think you pronounce it Alvinci. Um, that's what I've been. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. It's a pretty tricky, pretty, pretty tricky name to say, I think. But he had Google that. hates it. Every time you type it, Google decides that that's yeah. not a word. <laughs> well, yeah, look, it's a pretty weird looking word, but yeah, he, he had fought, he, he was, he was kind of worried about Napoleon because he'd fought him before the year before. Uh, and he was the guy who had uh, been in charge of the Austrians at the battle of Arcol. And so he had a master plan. So he, he somehow miraculously re invigorated the Austrian army and actually built it up to quite a formidable force so that it did actually outnumber the field forces that Napoleon had to, to, to oppose it. And his plan was much as his plan had been at Arcole. If you come at him from a, as many directions as possible, he cannot surely defend them all. So he thinks up, he basically creates five columns attacking in three basic directions to try and get through, uh, to cross the line of the Adige River and get onto the plains of Mantua. And what I I think, kind of what you're you were uh, you're hinting at a little bit, and that I think gets underplayed is is the incredible rejuvenation or the rejuvenatory power of the Austrians at this point. Like they've they've gone through four you know four armies have been kind of spread to the wind. Um, Alvinci somehow is able to bring them back in and, and give them um, hope and build the morale enough to, to get at it again. Um, I believe Austria. And, and what's fascinating too, is, is you have, it's not like uh, France, you know, the armies of Austria are, there's like 27 different languages. There's, uh, you know, same amount of different countries involved. The sergeant, the German sergeant has no idea what the, the Bosnian private is saying. Um, so the, it's in, in, in its own right, it's an interesting topic. Uh, and just Austria itself in the wars, I think it's the, the continental country that stays in the fight the longest. I believe it's like 109 months of fighting the French by the end of the war. Um, mm -hmm. obviously the British were the, the longest, but so I don't want to underplay Austria. Every time I, we, you know, Austria doesn't really get any love because they <laughs> get smacked around by Napoleon constantly. 
Uh, but it's not for yeah. lack of trying, you know. It's no, not no, for I, lack of trying. This is true. I, I mean, my, I have a friend here called uh, Jimmy Chen, and we do lots of videos together. And he loves to mock the Austrians because he he's into he's a Russianist. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> But it's true. They they did they did try their their hardest, and um, eventually it just became inevitable that they would have to sort of take a back seat. <laughs> well, what's it, so at, at this point, uh, Alvinci's plan is this multi pronged. Um, you know, he's going to try and overwhelm Napoleon's ability to defend himself, and it's. It, I, I think as I've been studying this, reading up, what we're what we're kind of running into at this point in uh, military history and in, in, in the war in, in general is a, uh, a clashing of eras because you've got Alvinci, who's very much in this uh, Frederick, the great mentality, Marlborough-esque where I've got multiple columns and they're very fancy and they can perform these maneuvers on the battlefield and in the, um, uh, you know, at the strategic level, I've got all these different things, moving parts, and then you have a natural who's kind of just going on feel and his understanding of the way that war is moving. Um, it's kind of reminiscent to me. I don't know what the equivalent to you guys would be over there, but we have little league. So when you're a kid, you play baseball and you know, everybody's about the same, probably soccer would be the same thing where all the kids are you know, they're, they're, they're not very good. They're not very athletic, but there's always that one kid who's a foot taller than everybody has an extra hundred pounds on everybody, uh, can run like the wind and just seems to inherently know how to play the game. Mm -hmm. And at first that kid is the all-star. They are incredible. By the time you get to, you know, high school or, or whatever the equivalent grade, you, you know, a few years down the line, everybody's hit the growth spurt. Everybody else is just as athletic. And that's what I'm basically Napoleon's career has that feel to me where he sees something. He's very in, intuitive at first. And then by the end of his career, you have guys like Wellington who are doing it better than he can, mm -hmm. you know, using his methods, but doing them better. Um mm -hmm. I don't know if that's, you know, that's obviously just very um, cursory, but so Rivoli is, is interesting to me on a number of levels and in the next, the, the kind of telescoping effect of the battle where at the strategic level, he's using interior lines, central position, speed of movement. And then we get to the battle itself and he's doing that on a smaller tactical scale. Um, his positions is, so, so we get to Rivoli, he's getting these, uh, urgent calls from all of his generals. Ogero is saying he's being attacked. I think Messena over in Verona says he's being attacked. And then Joubert, uh, who, who's in Rivoli? It's, uh, yeah, it's Joubert. Uh, um, absolutely, this is, this is absolutely the case. They're all saying they're being attacked, and they're all correct. They are all being attacked. And <laughs> Napoleon, therefore, has to do this thing where he has to decide which one is going to be um, the one he has to stop first, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a very, very, very high risk strategy to, to be quite honest. You know, it is, if, if it goes well, it goes brilliantly, but if it ever goes wrong, it will be appocalyptically bad. <laughs> so uh, the stress involved is 
I know, I know. It's like uh, he said. I think he had an, another quote that he pretty much just didn't stop during the first Italian campaign because he was always moving somewhere. Um, so uh, first of all, he thinks actually he has to go to Verona. I think he is fooled a little to begin with, or something like that. And then yeah, he, he ends up with Messena at uh, Verona. Right. And he's receiving these letters from Joubert, but he thinks Augereau might be the one getting hit. Yeah. And then there's another letter from Joubert on the 9th or on the 11th, I forget which, which strikes him as, okay, this is the one. This is Alvinci's coming down from the mountains. Mm -hmm. um, and then he flies to Joubert in the night. Mm -hmm. As Joubert apparently is writing a letter telling him that he's going to leave Rivoli, that he's going to retreat. Now he arrives at the battle in the middle of the night. And how does he possibly know what to do? How does he take in the situation? I, well, you know, there are some, there are some principles of, of command that Napoleon understood. I mean, he was a well-trained guy, you know, he, 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 he did things instinctively and he tried to be original in what he was doing with these high risk strategies that nobody else wanted to, to risk. And to be fair, the army of Italy was, was such like a, was such like a mongrel dog that he probably felt he could um, just mess around with it because if he had, maybe if he had a, a more like prestigious army, he wouldn't have acted this way. I don't know. But um, so <laughs> he, he goes, he gets to uh, Rivoli and the area. And um, obviously he tells Joubert, stop, stop your intention. We're going to fight here. I've, I've got Masena coming. Um, we have to hold them for as long as possible. <laughs> Um, and Chopin's like, well, we're all going to die, but okay, you're the, you're the boss. Uh, <laughs> uh, but what, how does he know what to do? Well, first of all, when, when, you're, uh, when you're a commander in the 19th century, late 18th century, you have to look at the ground. And Rivoli is a place that is, is suited to defend um, if you're a smaller force. Uh, it's on a kind of a plateau that rises from the Adesian is squeezed between that and a mountain range. And to its north, there are some formidable mountains um, into which is cut uh, a, a dramatic pass. And you can see that in the famous paintings of the battle, this, this, this really impressive looking uh, gorge through which the Austrians have to pass to be able to form up and, and fight effectively. So any attack that is going to be made on the plateau area, the flat ground uh, near the, I think it's the village of San Marco or something like that, uh, is going to immediately be split by all the ways that you have, that you can use to get to it. And Alvinci basically decides, uh, uh, and so uh, this is what Alvinci has to, to get through to get at Joubert. Now, obviously, Joubert obviously thought that this was an indefensible position. Having just said how interesting the terrain is for a, a defending force, you might think that's a bit strange. But the other problem, of course, is that there are so many ways to get to it. Mm -hmm. There are river crossings to the across the river, obviously, multiples of them. And there are several ways through the passes. And um, that means it can be outflanked. And so Napoleon is, is pretty much banking 
on his troops being able to hold long enough um, for him to mass enough, con uh, get a good enough concentration of reserve to make something happen. I'm not sure if he has an actual plan other than to hold, get the lock the enemy into a death grip, and then from that death grip, I'll be able to make something happen. It seems um, risky. <laughs> Highly uh, risky. <laughs> so, uh, in a bit, again, sorry, sorry. It was funny what you were saying about the Duke of Wellington before. The Duke of Wellington actually said that Napoleon's strategy was was like a was like a beautifully ornate harness. That when it worked, it worked perfectly. But as soon as something went wrong with it, everything went wrong. Which is why he preferred to, uh, a rope harness, uh, a harness made out of rope, which you could just tie a knot in and then go on. <laughs> I love that. That's uh, that is perfect, and it's funny because, and again, this is about Rivoli, but I, I, I Napoleon's so fascinating that I, I can't help but like talk about all of them, and uh, it, it's amazing because you see him become more, and his harness becomes more and more an ornate. Yeah, and where you know in at Rivoli you have Alvinci. Not only was he strategically using multiple columns to try and overwhelm Napoleon's defenses on that level, but at the Battle of of Rivoli, like you were saying, he's got these multiple uh, avenues to to attack Joubert, and he uses them. I think he 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 breaks his army up into six columns. Something he's got like two that, yeah. coming down the. Uh, Two columns coming down the eastern side of the uh, Adige River, three on the plateau, and then one going all the way around, coming trying to come from the south. Yeah, and at that at this point, you're watching it, and, or you're reading about it. But in my head, I'm watching it and thinking, you're overcomplicating this. Napoleon's not; he's doing the Wellington. He's tying a knot with in his harness, and he's not overcomplicating it. By the time we get to you know Waterloo, Napoleon's harness is 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 beyond ornate it's 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 made of paper mache it's so uh it's so fragile because it's all based on all this other stuff and it, it would be interesting you know i just wonder he 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 became what he was able to beat over and over in that he overcomplicated stuff um so alvinci's moving in these six columns He's got two coming down the eastern side, one going all the way around trying to come from the south. Napoleon comes in, and what's his first move? Uh, he arrives in the middle of the night, and then what's his first play against Alvinci's attacks? Uh, first play is to make sure that uh, Gilbert um, uh, sort of sets up uh, or deploys his troops as best he can uh, to guard the, the plateau passes, um, the northern passes where the two Alvinci's two three main columns are going to be coming and hitting him uh, because he knows that it'll take time for the flanking columns if I'm not sure if he knows about them yet to be honest but he probably assumes he has to worry about them uh, about his flanks all generals need to worry about their flanks so he, he he just sets up a set of priorities I think the first priority is the attack from the front which will probably be coming first. Um, and so he gets Jobert to deploy his troops in the vicinity of uh, San, the village of San Marco, which is on the, uh, which is sort of bordering the Adige and sitting sort of in front of the pass, um, and is sort of forward of the plateau. He wants to try and 
keep as much room as possible for as long as possible. So he's 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 citing his troops quite forward um, towards where the Austrians will be coming. And then obviously he's sending guys riding like the wind back to get uh, get Massena and um, uh, the other guy, uh, who I've forgotten his name at the second, but there's another guy he sends for as well. Ray? Yes, Ray. Um, and he sends he sends for those guys, and basically they now have to do what the army of Italy does very well, and that is march really fast um, to get there in time. That's 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 what he does first. It's it's orders for deployment and um, and and messengers. <laughs> I I love the you uh, the term you use prioritize, and it's fascinating because it seems like the best generals Caesar. Napoleon Wellington, they were just really good at prioritizing and then delegating. You know, they just really nailed it on the head with that. Um, so he prioritizes and then he builds his, uh, he, he kind of sets Jobert up with battle lines that would um, ensure he's working from interior lines. How is that um, possible? He, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to just paint the picture for us. What do we, what exactly does his battle line look like? It's very simple. It's very simple. Um, if you, I'm trying to think about how to describe it in words. It's always difficult um, to describe maps in words for people, but what you're looking at is, is, is I believe. Um, yeah. There's the, okay. So you have the river Adige, let's say on your right. And then on your left, you have a smaller river, um, which is an obstacle, but not a great one. And then more mountains beyond it and hills, which are theoretically secure. And so, and so if you think about that, just that there's a river on one side and you've got mountains and a smaller river on, your, on the other side, that is what you call secure flanks. And so all Joubert has to do is basically fill in that gap. Mm -hmm. So it's basically just a line from San Marco to the smaller river. And the, uh, the idea of interior lines, of course, is nicely exemplified in, in the Battle of Rivoli um, on a smaller scale, like you were saying before. The Austrians have to do a lot of work running around to try and, to try and uh, take advantage of this position. And all Napoleon has to do is basically tell Joubert, form a line of brigades from there to there and um, have some reserves just in case and and just hold your ground and, until you all die, basically. You know, stand to the last man. <laughs> Do it for the Republic. Napoleon, let's not forget, was a very inspiring guy. You were talking about um, the, ki the kid who's a little taller. Napoleon was a dynamo in a tiny body. Um, I know people say he was of average height, but people don't take into account how little he was as a, in frame, which made him seem quite short. And quite little, and people, a lot of people who knew him actually uh, described this weird facet of this tiny little guy who scared the living daylights out of them, because of uh, his, his his the way he acted and and how he could he could um, he loved to keep people off balance. But he was a very inspiring guy, and I'm sure there was a address to the troops of Joubert's division to uh, to fight for liberty and and the ideals of the republic against the the Austrians. Well, whatever he said, it definitely worked because the the next day the fighting is uh, at Rivoli is intense, uh, especially on the plain. 
um, in those that in between those two rivers you were talking about, that main section, um, there's some really hot and heavy uh, yeah. combat. What is it? Is it a straight up slugfest? Is it back and forth? Uh, do you have any sense of of Hmm. It, from my reading, it seems like maybe the Austrians had the upper hand for a good portion of it. Uh, they definitely did, and I get the impression that Napoleon, because he because he was basically hinging everything on his reinforcements arriving in time, knew pretty much that he that Joubert would be driven back. So there's back and forth around the town, as there always is in Napoleonic battles. If there's a if there's ever a town in a Napoleonic battle. It's going to change hands multiple times. It's just the rule. Um, however, that's on Chauvet's right flank, and his left flank becomes imperiled fairly early on in the battle because, like you say, it's three Austrian columns coming through that pass, and they get to deploy and they start to drive Chauvet back down, uh, down to the south uh, to his rear the way Napoleon's reserves were going to be coming. And uh, the other thing about the topography of the battlefield is that it narrows in that direction. The Adige cuts kind of diagonally down from the right, and the little river cur curves to meet it uh, behind the French line. So you have kind of a funnel behind them, which is just, you know, it's, 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 it's like what we're saying, if it works well, it'll work really well. But if it works badly, the entire French army is going to get surrounded <laughs> and can't Massacre. escape. Yeah. Massacre. Uh, so this is this is very high stakes. And yeah, the Austrians have the upper hand. They drive Joubert back. His troops are definitely pulling back. And then suddenly you get the first reinforcements arriving. And that's Massena, right? Or was it right? Either way. Um, I believe... This... I, I think I have it written down that it's Massena. I think Massena arrives first, and that's good, because at this stage, Massena is considered almost as good as Napoleon. And if you put Massena and his division in a tactical situation like this, they will perform very impressive things. Um... For, because if you think about now what Messena has to do with his with his division, so Joubert has to just defend his front, but Messena, by the time he gets there, Austrians are crowding in like you like you were saying on the east to the Adige and are now starting to appear round the French left rear, um, and are threatening to cut communications off. You know, interior lines mean nothing if they cut the road. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Messena now has to actually split his force up. Some of it goes to help shore up Chauvet. Some of it goes to defend the fords of, of the French left flank. And some of it is held in reserve to sort of observe the, the Austrians, who I, I think that the funny thing about the Austrian attack on the east, eastern side, um, is that it doesn't do very much. I think they just, I think they just sort of line up their guns um, over there. So they don't have to worry very much about that. But Messene is everywhere. You know, he his his guys basically shore up the entire French line and stop the Austrian attack from developing to sort of crushing force. It's it's quite um, quite a brilliant bit of uh, tactical soldiering on Massena's part. 
And I think when Messina appears uh, on the field pretty famously, and, and this could be anachronistic or it could be a uh, propaganda, but I believe Napoleon turned to Jobert and said, in the midst of having Jobert's men get, you know, slaughtered on this plateau, he turns to him and he says, now we have them. And he, mm-hmm. you know, he apparently immediately understood, okay, now we've got the battle won, mm-hmm. even though at this moment, it seems as though it's, it's a tight run thing for sure. Messina's, yeah. um, you know, eventually would become one of uh, Napoleon's favorite marshals. I think he ranks him up there as top two or three of, of his own Easy. men. Easy, yeah. Um, and so he's performing miracles on the field at Rivoli. At one point, the Austrians seem to have uh, beaten the French on the plateau late in the day. They they caused the French to uh, to pull back, I think, on the right flank of Jobert's line. But then there's a cavalry charge that counterattacks. Hmm. Is there a uh, – do you think – now, a lot of the times you read these accounts and you wonder – you know, did it really happen that way? Because I've read 200 cavalrymen sent, you know, 5,000 Austrians fleeing into the distance. Um, <laughs> I've read 800 cavalry. It's hard to get a sense of, of what actually happened. But something occurred with the French cavalry. Uh, what's, what's your sense of it? Well, um, okay. So I actually think it's plausible. Uh, but under, for small amounts of cavalry to cause great damage to large amounts of infantry. But the circumstances have to be right. And so that takes us now to look at the situation that, at Rivoli at this particular turning point in the battle. Because <clears throat> if you take it from what Napoleon now prioritizes, what he does is he prioritizes his reserves. He needs a breakthrough force that can... That can meet the that once the Austrians have exhausted their attack, can counterattack and smash them open. And now the Austrians take a pause to reorder their lines, having forced the French back. And Napoleon does what Napoleon also likes to do: is that is mass his guns. And the Austrians are just a lovely, um, you know, a, 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 just a, a lovely target sitting out there, um, massing. Uh, in their in their masses, pouring through the pouring through the gorge, and he he just unleashes. I mean, it's a small small battery by what by, he, by his latest standards. I think it's only twelve or thirteen guns, but it causes great havoc um, and unsettles them greatly. Uh, and when the attack that uh, and and yeah, the next bit is a little muddy as some. Some some battles in the Italian campaign tend to be probably because of propaganda. Napoleon loved to just say, "I waved a wand and things happened." <laughs> but um, yeah, the Austrian attack is essentially met and repulsed, and the French immediately go on the attack um, and begin driving the Austrians back in confusion. Now. Uh, if you've ever been, I don't know if anybody's ever been to a place with a high density crowd in it, but not a long time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, not for a while, yeah. But if you've ever been to, I mean, people say who have been to a crowd in Walt Disney World on a busy day or something like that. If you can imagine something bad happening, mm. where all those people are going to go is like in one or two directions. 
So if you're in a confined space with thousands of guys and in a in, in, already in a situation where your basic job is to kill somebody or be killed, panic is is never far away. And so you have you have this this do or die situation coupled with the confined space. There's nowhere to really maneuver. You're you are now being driven back, and the weight of your numbers is making it very difficult for you to put up a a decent defense. That's going to cause a great amount of panic, especially as smaller but more active French infantry are now pressing you from the front. And so in circumstances like that, where panic is never very far away, as soon as someone starts to run, as soon as you actually get that breakthrough, that's when cavalry become very, very dangerous. Because if you just look at the psychology of an infantryman in those days, they depend on being together at all times to be effective as a unit, and especially to defend against cavalry. If there was no cavalry on the field, they wouldn't actually need to be so densely packed, mm -hmm. if you think about it that way, because then they could just do whatever they wanted, really, because the, the fastest thing on the battlefield is, is another guy, is a, is a man. But here, as the Austrian attack disintegrates and they're being driven back towards the narrow pass, I believe it's LaSalle with like 200 hussars or something like that, who just dive in and everybody. And the other thing it was, well, as you have to think about the sort of the fog of war, the confusion of, of the battle. So you got musket smoke. You've got a lot of guys running around in different directions. You're not quite sure what's happening, but you're sure it's pretty bad. You're an Austrian soldier. You're an Austrian or Hungarian grenadier or whatever it is. And you're standing in the front line and things are suddenly going really badly. You've been ordered to retreat or you're just trying to get to the rear to reform. And then suddenly you either see 200 cavalry moving this way or you can see them doing it. That's very scary because they've got the drop on you for a start. Or even worse, you're way back. You don't see them. You just see, you just hear people call cavalry. That is actually a terrifying word in the Napoleonic Wars. If any, if, if people start screaming cavalry, then generally speaking, people are going to start running because you're not prepared for it, and that that usually means they're coming at you. And this is how Lasalle was probably able to wreak such chaos amidst this this Austrian column, which apparently, like yeah, like you say, the numbers are ridiculous. Uh, they say like 5,000 men disintegrated and like only 300 were able to rally uh, two days later or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think you're, 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 you're right. And first, you paint a lovely, you know, a wonderful image there because I am immediately am thinking of like uh, – you know, the crowds of Tokyo when Godzilla shows up, mm. whenever cavalry is yelled, all the people go running and uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's quite a p image. But the, the, the other thing that on top of all the stuff that you just mentioned, you know, how long have those guys been fighting at the front line? Like exactly. how tired, you know, if you're tired, you're dehydrated, you haven't eaten or the most you've eaten all day is, you know, a couple pieces of bread and a sausage or something. Yeah. Fighting is an exhaust. Even for you know, I think one of the things that's interesting at the when you're when you dive into military history is that like we still don't know how ancient combat worked. Yeah, and we understand that 
just doing it for five minutes would be exhausting. How did like canny possibly function? How did that <laughs> battle work? Well, the same thing, it, it, you know, the Napoleonic Wars is a few thousand years, or, you know, it, it's, it's centuries later, but it's still guys standing in line trying to kill other guys, stab them, shoot them, whatever. It's still exhausting work. So by the end of the afternoon, if you think you're winning all day and then all of a sudden that's something snaps and flips yeah. and now you're demoralized and exhausted, it's much easier to imagine everybody just kind of, and then you get the herd mentality that just kind of seeps through. Um, I, I think you're right. I think it probably did happen a lot like this. It just, it is, it is, uh, a little hard to believe when you read it. The numbers it are crazy. It is. I mean, we also need to remember as well that the Austrians weren't in actually a great morale kind of state when they began the campaign. Yeah, they'd been gotten together in large numbers, but they'd failed three times mm-hmm. to beat Napoleon. They knew really well, even the lowest Austrian soldier knew that they were up against fight against these nutcases and these scrappy nutcases. Um that they could come from any direction whatsoever. And so you're not dealing with like an all-conquering army here that might be able to put up a decent defense when things go wrong. You know, they've they've been through this, some of them, before. And they just, you know, tends it tends to be a mentality develops within armies that get constant, cons- consistently defeated that the enemy is just, there's no point in fighting these guys anymore now on th- when something goes wrong. Let's just get out of here. So there's that as well. And I think it, it seeps in as, you know, at, at some level, unconsciously, even when it's going well in armies like that, there's always the thought of, well, just give it time. Something's going to happen. You know, we, we might be winning right now, but something is going to come out of the skies and and some stupid thing is going to happen and we're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, What's also worse is that by the time this, you know, by the time the French start getting the upper hand and start pushing the Austrians back in confusion, more French reserves are now coming up the road. You've got Ray and you've got Victor. Um who are going to isolate the, obviously the French, make sure that basically they're going to secure the French flanks and drive yet more, more troops up into the vital zone that pass, um, that the Austrians, the main Austrian force has to get back through now to escape. Mm-hmm. And I think the, 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 the flanking column that, uh, Alvinci sent all the way around the left side to come up from the rear. I believe they get uh, surrounded at Mount Pipolo and ended up just surrendering. Um, so it's falling apart. And and I, I want to wrap it up because I've already stolen a good portion of your, your day. Um, but to get to the – so the battle is, is pretty much done, but it's not over because uh, – Napoleon is in a position where he still has other fighting going on on his strategic line. He's still afraid that the papal force might be coming up to relieve Mantua. Mantua is going to try and break out of its uh, siege. And uh, Provera, the other Austrian general, is really putting uh, Augereau into a a tight spot. Uh, So does Napoleon... You know, one of the biggest knocks on a lot of generals is that the pursuit never really matches the victory or, you know, they never seal the deal with the the final pursuit. Does Napoleon pursue Alvinci and, and, and finish him off or is he pulled away from uh, Rivoli to go put out other fires? 
It's both, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Napoleon uh, is actually a very good delegator, Um, like you said at the beginning. He actually trusts subordinates to do a job, especially if it's a simple job like chase the Austrians until they all surrender. So Rivoli was such a a, a route. Uh, I don't actually think many Austrians were actually killed at the battle. Most of them ran away. The actual damage was done the day after and the day after that by the pursuit. I think by Ray took the reins of the pursuit, I um, I think. And he did inflict great amounts of damage. Those huge uh, casualty figures that you see for Alvinci's army are mostly done in the days of the pursuit. It's very medieval in that sense where yeah. a lot of guys would get killed during the battle. Most of them would get killed when they ran away or captured. So... That and so Napoleon just again he sensed that if you just keep kind of pressing Alvinci's broken main force, it will just keep running. So he felt confident enough to delegate a pursuit to somebody else, so he could run off with uh, his best guys like Messena and maybe uh, Victor, who was more rested. I, I forget precisely the the actual order of battle that he takes back to to takes with him to go. He definitely takes Messena. Yeah. Um immediately cuz I believe Messena's forces did like I think it's like 130 kilometers round trip in 2 days or something like that. It's it's some crazy number and and this is all, you know, it's human hoof at this point. Yeah. So it's 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 incredible that he was able to move that quickly. Yeah, so Definitely takes Messena. Messena's Messena's the guy you want at all times next to you in this campaign. But uh, yeah, so he he delegates to the pursuit of Alvinci and it goes very well because he knows that that's safe enough to leave. Even if it doesn't go well, he's he's this is his plan. This is how he works the Italian campaign. Even if you don't crush the first enemy you 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 fight in the in the critical battle, you've at least batted him off. So you can then run off to the next point. This is interior lines of communication working again. And you can rush troops and rush over to the next bit, beat him again. So even if the first guy comes back, you just pull back maybe, you retreat to a different position, and you fight him again. It's like this allows you to fight multiple times without utterly destroying the enemy necessarily, although that's a bonus. And obviously that is what happened at Rivoli. The Austrian army... Huge amount of men out, like 28,000, 30,000 men, completely wiped off the map as an effective force. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he then went to help Augereau. And this, Rivoli itself, Rivoli itself spelled the end for Mantua, really. They could sally out if they wanted to, they could try and break out if they wanted to. But when they heard that, that they, you know, the relief force had failed again, what's the point? I think it yeah. surrendered like three weeks later or something like that. I believe that's right. Yep. Yeah. I think um, they attempted at some point to, to link up with Provera um, and Wormser, the guy who's in charge in Mantua kind of, it was a half-hearted attempt. Uh, they get the news about Rivoli and then kind of, you know, they call it a day three weeks later and, yeah. and, when Mantua falls, uh, what's the strategic situation at that point? Does Napoleon have to 
really it's kind of the whole thing ends as as kind of Napoleon's coming out onto the stage of Europe as a major player. What does he do at the in the aftermath of Rivoli to to propel himself forward as as a clear player on this uh, this grand stage? Well, uh, Napoleon was very good at self-promotion. So obviously Letiers gets sent back to Paris saying how brave and brilliant he was and, uh, uh, you know, making sure that everybody who was anybody knew how brilliant he had been and, and, and how, how, how devastated he, uh, the Austrian army now was and how pretty much now I am able to, I can, I can go to anywhere in Italy and conquer it. Because the Austrians are out of the game, you know, I, he actually does go to Venice um, and takes Venice and ends um, the the independence uh, republic of Venice pretty much after an uninterrupted span of hundreds of years. He just rolls in there, and um, I mean, uh, he appoints some of his generals governors, which works out good and bad because Messene is one of them, and Messene is an inveterate looter. Uh, and he he pillages so much that even Napoleon has to fire him. That's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's saying a lot. Yeah, uh, and and I'm actually speaking of speaking running right back to the beginning when you were saying why are the French in Italy. One of the main reasons they were in Italy was to actually get money for the coffers of the Revolutionary War effort by basically pillaging Italian cities. And so this was able. This all, you know, all all goals accomplished. You know, by this point, the attack, Jordan's attack on the Rhine, had gone nowhere. And now Napoleon in Italy was the place that the place that wasn't supposed to win a win win the war was winning the war because mm-hmm. they had they had so badly crippled the Austrians and so just just embarrassed them. You know, this was this was humbling. This was this was terribly embarrassing to the Austrians that they just couldn't do anything against this this mongrel dog of an army, of uh, against this nobody who had fired a bunch of a bunch of cannons at Toulon for for all anybody knew, um, and and fired some grape shot at some royalist peasants. Uh, it's like it was it, this this stunned Europe. This this campaign. And and mongrel is the appropriate term because if you look at you know these guys are straggling around in in, in rags by the end of this their mm-hmm. torn uniforms are all <laughs> their kit is complete garbage yeah. uh, and they must have looked like a, a true just a mass of 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 mongrel peasantry on the <laughs> Austrian border um, so then Napoleon brings the Austrians to the uh, I think against the directory's directive, uh, mm-hmm. he was not supposed to do anything with the dipl- diplomatic end. Uh, Campo Formio mm. is the piece that he gets, he kind of pulls out of the um, Austrians and he realigns the Italian duchies cities. Is it the Cisalpine? Oh yeah. The Cisalpine Republic. Republic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he, he at an early stage here he's showing his like uh his he's he's kind of a micro not a micro yeah i guess a micromanager he has an interest in everything mm. uh and he wants everything to be done the way he wants it yep yeah this is this is classic this is classic napoleon sort of emerging as the napoleon we all know of um 
he's he's that 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 vision board of his has just expanded quite a lot. Uh, he 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 described himself at one point at this at this stage as pretty much king of Italy because it was like his own kingdom. And he does this, you know, generals, yeah, generals under the directory aren't meant to be not generals of Napoleon's rank in, in secondary theaters aren't meant to be dictating peace terms to the Austrians or, or ceasefire terms or whatever. Um, and so the directory were pretty mad at him. And anybody who knows anything about the French directory and the revolutionary wars know that this is a red flag to them. Generals getting political, they don't like that. And they will be, and they do try to remove him from the army of Italy as a result. And which is when he says, no, what, you know, is it any surprise they want to get rid of me? Because I'm pretty much king of Italy right now. <laughs> Uh, he, I, I give it to him, you know, if slight feminine frame, but the man had balls, huge, huge cojones. Yeah. Um, so just to put a bow on it, I, and I want to make sure we're clear, like there is no blueprint to being a brilliant general. When we talk about blueprint and, and floor plan or whatever the term you want to use, we're simply... Napoleon had a, f- a huge array of tools that made him a uniquely brilliant f- commander. Mm-hmm. But those three things that you really drove home on interior line, central position, speed of movement, those three things strike you when, uh, as you dive into the Napoleon um, legacy, I think they would strike anybody. And again, it's not a blueprint that you can just pull a couple pieces of paper and say, all right, we're going to use central lines or central position today. (laughs) And that means we're going to win the day. Um, It's a, it's a, it's a bunch of different aspects about Napoleon combined. Um, Would you stack him? And I know a lot of historians hate doing this, uh, (laughs) but I love it. I, I I'm, I'm not a historian. I'm a history fan. And I love the idea of those those pub or bar conversations of, uh, you know, who's the greatest of all time? Mm. Uh, we know you're a Wellington guy. <laughs> where does Napoleon uh, where does Napoleon rank on your your list of top commanders? Okay, on the spot. Let's see. Um, I mean, I, I consider myself more of like as well a more of a history fan and a history writer than a historian. But um, so I feel fine, you know having this conversation it's just i'm not sure is the problem because when you start talking about you know the greatest generals in history um you have to be kind of you have to take in it's it's not as simple anymore because there are a lot of great generals in history um some of whom don't get the the limelight they deserve um but he would he yeah, I mean, at, at his prime, he must be considered one of the greatest um, military military commanders in history. Yes, definitely. Um, whether he deserves to be the greatest, uh, as some people like to think of him as, mm-hmm. probably not. Because, as we've said in this episode, if you look at if you look at the Italian campaign, you can see the strengths of his, his, his method of warfare and its weaknesses. At any point, he could have been utterly and convincingly defeated. 
So it's all a knife edge. It's a gamble. Napoleon's strategy basically is, I will put myself in the hole with you, and I will drag you down with me, and I will fight my way out of it because I am just so intuitively better at warfare than you. And that is that is his entire strategy boiled down into into just a little into a little package. <laughs> it's almost uh, it, there's a certain irony because it's almost Nelsonian. Like the two of them have the same concept of uh, you know mm-hmm. it seems like very similar ideas of how to how to go about fighting. Mm. Um, so before we get to all these, I ask everybody I've interviewed the same question. There's one battle, one moment in history that you get to just view from a hot air balloon. Mm-hmm. You get to be there to see it. You're not participating. You're just watching it like a movie as it unfolds. What moment is that for you? Okay. Well, that is very difficult. Very difficult indeed. Um, I wouldn't choose a battle um, because although I write about them a lot and I, I read about them a lot and I study them a lot, I don't actually like them. Um, mm. Battles battles are things that happen once, you know, are, are, spe- are specific things that occur in history and reliving them is something that nobody who went through them except for like a handful of people who actually really enjoy fighting, uh, <laughs> uh, don't really want to relive. And so I, I don't think I would actually want to see a battle. I don't think it's, it's something I would want to see um, as, as just a spectator. You know, yeah. If I was in one, then I'm obviously there for some reason. But uh, <laughs> if it's just to see one, I wouldn't choose a battle. Uh, moments, moments. But you see, then that's the problem because battles are such easy moments in history to look at. So I would actually say that I would, I would actually say that I would go to look at a city. I would go and see like Tenochtitlan in oh. Mexico City or something like that, and see what it looked like. Interesting. That's that's funny. It's it's uh, the, so the guests that I've had that have been are writers or historians or anything like that. They typically have said the same kind of thing of, I don't know if I want to see the actual battle, but then I've had a, a few different veterans on and they are always saying like, oh, I really want to see, you know, <laughs> uh, Agincourt or uh, mm. you know, uh, Shalom uh, or whatever. It oh, be. So, seriously though, seriously though. Veteran, okay, respect to you guys. You know, you've seen some stuff. You can deal with, you can deal with the horror uh, of war, veterans, you know, that's great. You want to see those things for yourselves? I respect that courage. But a medieval battle? Oh, no. Seriously, guys. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah, no thanks. No thanks. I'll take a hard pass. A hard pass. That's brave. Um, brave. Yeah, they're they're crazy. Um, (laughs) So, Wild East, tell us about it. I got to admit, I went on Amazon uh, last night. There, it's in my queue. There are two left on Amazon, but I'm sure that you can order more. Um, and I'm I'm intrigued on a number of levels. I don't know anything about this particular British time period in Japan, uh, so it's all going to be new information for me. And I am just fascinated by uh, Japan after it was opened by Perry. So. Anything that is in there, I'm, I'm intrigued. So, what 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 is Wild East? What 
how does this project come about and uh and just give us an overview on it okay well uh if you're going to describe it the easiest way to describe it is to ask people if they've ever seen the last samurai before um and then say that this is what happened before that um okay (laughs) uh and then and then say that uh, some uh, it was quite a while ago now. There was a forum called the Victorian Wars Forum, which I was part of. I was a member of that. I, I used to interact with people and I used to learn a lot. And uh, we used to have some, some fun discussions. That's defunct now. But um, at one point, I was just sort of randomly wandering about, you know, the places that Britain colonized. And I wondered what we did in Japan. Uh, and so I asked on the forum, so what was the British, what were the British doing in Japan, you know, in the Victorian era? And somebody sent me a Wikipedia page to something called the bombardment of Shimonoseki. Shimonoseki is a, is a, is a, is a, is a, is a town, uh, well, a city now, uh, in South Central Japan, which overlooks a, uh, I don't know what you call it. Basically, you know how it's it's made up of islands. Uh, I think it's I think I think it's the I think it's the piece of water that separates Honshu from whatever the strait, southern one is. Isn't it? Yeah, it's a strait. Yes, exactly. That's the word. Yeah. I wrote the book. I've just completely forgotten all the terminology. Um, so it's a strait between two of the main islands of Japan, which would have been just a much better and concise way of saying it, don't you think? Um, <laughs> and apparently the British bombarded it. And I thought, oh, well, that's fun. Now, in those days, I was thinking, well, fun, I think. Well, that's interesting. This is historian speak. We think battles are fun on a purely um, on a purely mental level. Um so I thought that was interesting. And in those days, I was going to write a novel. And I still want to write a novel, but the, the main goal was to write a novel. And I thought, well, maybe there's, I'll log that away, and I'll, I'll make that maybe the setting for some sort of novel. And as time went on, I kept bumping in weird to weird references to the British in Japan. It's like, for instance, I came across the book written by Ernest Satow uh, called A Diplomat in Japan. And I read that. It was really, really interesting and stuff that I had never re- heard about. Uh, certainly, and certainly I'd never known the British were involved in. And so I, as time went on, I decided I, I'd made history land by this time and I was writing history blogs. I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do a blog a series of blog posts about it. And I started collecting more and more information. And then at some point I realized, well, you know, this is just a book now. I can do a book from the from the from the information I have here, and so I decided to write a book. And the book is basically about the early interactions between the British Empire and the Empire of Japan after Perry comes in and says, "Free trade, Japan, or I'll <laughs> blow you up." <laughs> Very free. And so um, it's 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 about gunboat diplomacy. It's about assass- political assassinations. About politics. It's about uh, an empire, a country, a divided country trying to find its way forward and avoid the fate of, I'm going to say China here, because it, Japan did avoid the fate of China during the Opium Wars. And part of this was actually me wondering, well, why didn't the British colonize 
parts of Japan the way it colonized parts of the rest of the world. How did Japan become a global superpower? How did Japan become the only Asian nation yeah. to, to get into the League of Nations um, in the 20th century? So it's like these things were the stepping stones to me wanting to write the book. And hopefully it's entertaining and interesting to people. It's it's a bit, I, I probably got in over my head with this kind of subject for my first book, to be honest, because, um, and, and it could have been much larger, actually. I, I didn't put in a whole bunch of stuff that I could have about Japanese politics and stuff because the word counts. But um, it's really fascinating stuff. It's, it's really exciting history. You've got, if anybody's interested in, in samurai and uh, the interaction that these people had with Westerners and that age-old idea of who wins between a samurai and a, you know, whoever. You know, samurai have been pitted against every different type of theoretical enemy in, in the world. This actually happens here. Um, and how and it's really interesting to see how British diplomats and civilians and soldiers dealt with the fact that you are you have a feudal you have a feudal class of people who are legally obligated and entitled and empowered to use the swords they carry. Um, <laughs> and uh, It's an and, interesting, uh, a strange alien world. I just can't, I, I'm very excited to read it because I don't know anything about it. And I just, that it's such a fascinating clash of time periods and cultures and belief mm -hmm. systems. Um, and it's so underreported. You talked about writing a novel. I was like, shit, I got to get that novel. That's, uh, <laughs> that's something I want to read. I, I keep us in the loop on that because that sounds cool. Well, I, I will do my best to further that idea. I'll keep you in the look, loop on that. Until that time, if you actually want to read a novel about the, the British in Japan at this time, you look for a novel by James Clavell called Gaijin. That's G-A-I-J-I-N. And that is actually uh, was done in the 80s, I think, or 70s. And he's the guy who wrote Shogun. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. I thought the name sounded familiar. I didn't so know he, he had. Yeah, he, he had a whole series of stuff. Yeah, he had a whole series of stuff. Uh, so if you read that, you'll be reading about fictionalized events that I talk about in this book, uh, historically speaking. And... Um, yeah, this, it would, there are stuff in it that would make a very good novel and hopefully it makes good history reading as well. And, um, well, I'm sure it does. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting it and, and, and giving it a read and, and talking about it later at some point. Um, go ahead and give us one more time where we can find your, your, uh, social media and, and what you're up to and keep up with you. Okay, so um, you can find me on Twitter at Land of History, and the blog is called adventuresinhistoryland.com. I'm also on YouTube at that same uh, address. I've been trying to build that channel up this last year uh, with the help of friends on Twitter and things like that. And if you, but basically, if you find me in in one place, especially Twitter, you will find me anywhere. Uh, right now, I am expecting to have another book out uh, by the spring or summer of 2021, uh, which is about uh, the Second Anglo-Maratha War, 
which which hopefully will be interesting to people and have some, some cool. surprises in it. Uh, and also, uh, as soon as the National Archives reopen and as soon as foreign travel is allowed to happen again, uh, I will be pressing ahead with a book on the Siege of Pensacola, where the Spanish show the British the door in West Florida. All right. That sounds, uh, that's another one of those I've never even heard of it. So I'm excited to, to get your thoughts and, and dive into that at some point down the road. Uh, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, again, folks, go uh, check them out on Twitter, subscribe on YouTube, uh, and keep up with Josh here. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate all your time. Um, thank you very much, man. This is awesome. Great stuff. Uh, very insightful, and uh, and I hope you enjoyed your time. And folks, like, rate, review, subscribe, do all the things that you need to do on social media. Uh, and always, if you can, give a review on iTunes or a five-star rating. It really helps. I know it's annoying, but uh, it does help the show. So thank you very much for listening. We'll check in with you uh, with the full battle of Rivoli. Up after Rivoli, we are talking to uh, the president of the Australian War Museum or War M Memorial and we'll be covering the Battle of the Kokoda Trail so check that out when it comes out all right we'll talk to you soon bye now